Our lives today are fundamentally different from the way we lived as recently as the end of World War II. The changes in society that technology have induced over the past 60 years are often startling. Award-winning science writer and contributing editor of Popular Mechanics, Alex Hutchinson explores which breakthroughs have spearheaded this revolution in a new book. It's titled, Big Ideas, 100 Modern Inventions That Have Transformed Our World. Dr. Hutchinson consulted 25 experts in a host of diverse fields to deliver their verdict on these inventions, accompanied by fascinating anecdotes about both inventor and invention. Alex Hutchinson holds a Ph.D. in physics from Oxford University and did postdoctoral work in nano-electromechanics for the National Security Agency. While some of his editorial choices are obvious, a few will surprise you. We're keen to talk about them, and we're pleased to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Alex Hutchinson. Thanks so much for having me. I'm tempted to start off by asking about some of the choices that I found most curious, but since you start the book noting that if all the inventions cited were arranged in the family tree, the transistor would be the founding father, so I think we're obliged to start there. What, what made the transistor so revolutionary? Well, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's really in hindsight that we can look back or we can flip through the pages of this book, in fact, and say probably three-quarters of these inventions uh, wouldn't exist if the transistor hadn't existed. Now, you know, they knew it was important when they invented it. This is one of those ones that wasn't discovered by, exa by, by accident. They were trying to, to build a better and smaller and more efficient amplifier to replace vacuum tubes. But uh, it's, it's only in hindsight that we can look back and say, wow, this really did change everything. And, and so many of the things that we think are important go back to the transistor. And I guess we don't realize just how much, how much faster they are than the old vacuum tubes. Yeah, I think they don't get the respect they deserve maybe because, I mean, these days you can fit, uh, you know, 30 million of them on, on the head of a pin. And so no one really knows what a transistor looks like. We don't think of it as, you know, we think of our computers, they're great, but all of that is powered by, the, by these transistors, which are, yeah, I think they can switch on and off about 300 billion times a second. And, that, you know, that, that's why we have wow. all, all, our, all the gadgets we have. Well, let's stick with computers. That was the first section in the book, first 10 items in the book. Uh, I was not clear on the importance of random access memory, but yet you explained very clearly it speeds data retrieval. And the key to that breakthrough was in 1956 when IBM invented a machine using spools of magnetic tape. Yeah, I mean, you can think of it like, you know, I think most of us remember the days of VCRs when if you wanted to get back to that point halfway through the movie, you had to sit there and scroll through the whole darn tape. Right. Um, and how much nicer it is with, with uh, DVDs to be able to just click through to the next chapter and to go anywhere you want. And that, that's really what random access memory is. is, it, is it's a, a way of storing memory that it's not sequential. It's not in a stack of punch cards or, or in a big reel of tape. And so that's why we can have a big disk drive and uh, the, the random access memory can access any bit of memory in roughly the same amount of time. It's, it's random how, how long it's going to take rather than in, you know, taking longer the longer ago you saved it. Well, most people, are, I think, are familiar with how the ARPANET gave rise to the Internet, but I'll wager a lot of folks think of the World Wide Web as synonymous with the Internet. And uh, can you please explain how it is that the ARPANET dates to 1960 while the World Wide Web really didn't come about till 20 years later? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody of, of, as, of using the words Internet and Web pretty much interchangeably. I'll say, you know, I'm going to go on the Internet or I'm going to go on the Web to, to look something up. 
the internet is really the the computers and and the way they're connected and that like you said it comes from from the ARPANET which was a Department of Defense project to hook up computers across the the, the country um, but just because you have computers hooked up doesn't uh, doesn't give you the fascinating information that we can now get on the web and that that was something that actually didn't come until 1989 uh, a physicist in Switzerland uh, came up with the basic building block, the, you know, the, the addresses that we type in, you know, HTTP dot slash slash, and the way the computers would, would uh, you know, exchange information. So the, the web is all the documents and the, the, these days all the sounds and pictures and videos that exist and are exchanged across the Internet. The Internet gives us the way of exchanging it, but the web is the stuff we actually look at. Well, your book's full of interesting asides, uh, and since you're talking about the about the World Wide Web, you note that uh, Tim Berners-Lee, the, the inventor of the World Wide Web, decided not to uh, to cash in on his invention, and that's that's been a benefit to all of us. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I, I, I mean, what what he said, uh, I guess the, the the quote of his that I put in the book is that you can't propose that something be a universal space and at the same time keep control of it. In other words, if he had invented the World Wide Web and said, you know, okay, anyone who wants to post anything on this web needs to pay me, you know, two dollars. Probably no one would have posted anything, and then it wouldn't have taken off. So, so, so his point is that it's only such a success because he was willing to just make it free. That being said, I think, you know, if, if money was a real motivator for him, I'm sure he could have found ways to, to cash in on that, right. especially once things started to take off. So I think, um, you know, fundamentally, I think he's, he's just a happy guy who goes to bed <laughs> at night knowing that he's probably one of the most important guys in his generation. Well, God bless him for that. Uh... Final thing on computers, I think you note that Google has now ended the language meaning to search the web, but Googling is the result of an invention called PageRank. Can you explain what PageRank is? Yeah, I mean, when the, when the first search engines started to be developed in the 90s, they were really just, they searched for keywords. So if you, you know, if you, if you typed in my name, they would just look for the documents that mentioned my name the most often, and, and people pretty pretty quickly figured out how to just you know, type in words over and over again to, to, to jerry-rig the results of, of search engines. Google was a very sophisticated, or, or PageRank, rather, was a very sophisticated way of analyzing the importance of, of websites, which started out as a research project at Stanford to understand the, the linkings of the web. And so it, it, each page is assigned an importance based on the, the pages that link to, the, to, to that page and and it depends on how important the pages that link to the page are, and it goes on and on and on. So your your page's rank depends on whether you're getting good pages to link to you when those pages have good pages to link to them, and so on. So it's this gigantic popularity contest that takes into account the whole web's opinion of your page. And that's why you know, you, you're going to get a government website. You're going to give that more weight than, than someone's MySpace page. And you're you're more likely. It's not a perfect setup, but it, that's why Google was so revolutionary. It stopped just giving you a, a search of which keywords showed up. It actually analyzed the structure of the web. Let's let's do some choices that uh, that I found most surprising. Um, one from your building and manufacturing section, float glass dating back to 1958. Can you tell us what that refers to? I I, I love that one because that's one of the one of just a couple that. I had never heard of before starting the research for this book. I'd never heard the words float and glass even next to each other, but it's, it's absolutely uh, transformative. This guy in 1952, a guy named Alistair Pilkington, 
was washing dishes and he saw the bubble floating on top of the water. And he thought, hey, this is a great way to make flat glass. If we have a, a bath of molten tin and we put molten glass on top, because of the way liquids are, they have flat surfaces. That's going to make perfectly flat glass. And, you know, we've been making glass for, for hundreds of years, but this was a way to make inexpensive and distortion-free glass for the first time, you know, in, in a way that we could never do before. And it took seven years and, and the modern equivalent of about a billion dollars of development to take it from his kitchen sink to a, to a working process. But immediately it totally transformed the, the industry. And, and these days, more than 90% of the, of the window glass in the world is made using this process that one guy just thought up in 1952. He, he took, that's why we have cheap or at least relatively affordable glass that doesn't have waves and wiggles in it. Wow. And I, you know, I'd never heard of it. Yeah, time. no, I, I hadn't either. And just, do you know why molten tin? Was it just the right temperature for the glass? I was kind of curious about that. Uh, that I, I don't know exactly, except that you know it, it has to have an, a, you know, a big enough, a great enough density that yeah. the glass can't sink into it, yeah. and it has to stay hot, but you don't want it bubbling up or anything like that. So you've got to consider a lot of different factors, and then you, as you gradually cool it, because they, they do it in these long canals, and they, they sort of push the, the molten glass down the canal, gradually cooling um, as it goes, until the glass is solid and the tin isn't. So yeah. there's probably a few different materials you could, you could use, but, you, but not that many. Uh, the bypass turbofan, another surprise for me. Uh, you noted that the jumbo jet needed uh, kind of a, just a more efficient jet engine to make it work, and the key to that was evidently just to blow more air through the engine. Yeah, that was an interesting one, because one of the things we wanted to, to look at is, you know, th there's big things in the world that we know are important, like the jumbo jet really did change the nature of, of mass air travel. But what is it that made the jumbo jet possible? What, what is it that changed that allowed us to, to send these huge jets? And, and in this case, what it turns out the key was was this high-bypass turbofan. And, and what happens there, in an ordinary jet, you, you, uh, you, know, you, you combust your, your fuel and, and blow it out the back, and that pushes you forward. But it, it, as you get bigger and bigger, if you just make your engine bigger, you're going to have to use so much more fuel that it gets too, too heavy. So the bypass turbofan takes in air, from the front, but instead of sending it through the combustion chamber, it sends some of the air around the combustion chamber. It doesn't combust it, so it doesn't use more fuel. Then it inserts it back into the, this, this chamber where it's blown out the back. So you get all the benefit of pushing back with this air, but you don't burn more fuel. And, and that, that was the, the development. That, so, so the high-bypass turbofans, uh, eventually you, you, the, the first jumbo jet was taking five times more air around the outside of the engine than it was taking through the engine. And that, that, that allowed jumbo jets to be. I'll wager that a majority of our listeners uh, don't know what a CCD is, and yet it's the foundation for modern cameras and important in astronomy. Can you, can you explain what a charge-coupled device is? Yeah, I mean, so when... This, this is one of those things that in some senses goes back to, to Albert Einstein. When you, when you shine light on a, on a surface, it, it can generate some electrons. Um, and so the idea here is that you divide up your, your detector into a into a grid, so you you've got, you know, I think people can can think of digital pictures as this big grid of pixels. You might have five million pixels. Each one of those pixels in a camera is a separate detector where it's counting the number of electrons that have been bounced free by by incoming light. And the CCD was a way of counting each one of those electrons um, to to be able to tell you how bright or dark each pixel was. And uh, that, that was something they, 
they, they were actually trying to develop a, a, a form of computer memory, but very quickly once they developed it, a couple of researchers at uh, Bell Labs in New Jersey, they uh, they realized, oh, this could be this could be a way of imaging, and and that's every, pretty much every, people are starting to develop new technologies, but even now, pretty much all digital cameras, digital video cameras, all these things, and and certainly telescopes, rely on these super sensitive charge coupled devices, CCDs. Well, I was unaware of the term Kermantle rope, but you chose it as a revolutionary uh, in innovation in the area of leisure. Can you talk about what that is and, and why, why did your experts find that so transformative? You're, you've got a good eye for the, the unusual ones because Kermantle rope and the, uh, and the float glass were the two that I had never heard of before researching this book. Yeah. So I, I, sh I should start with a little preamble that we, we made an, a, a, an effort not to let the the book be dominated by any one topic. So we could have had 98 computer-related inventions sure. and then added a couple other things. So we were looking for things that, that have made big changes, um, but but not necessarily all in the same field. So Kernmantle rope is, is a, a type of rope that was developed by a, a German company called Edelrid in uh, the early 1950s. And rope was just changing at that time because synthetic fibers had been invented. Instead of using hemp or manila, um, there were these new new kinds of rope. But even so, they didn't necessarily have the properties you wanted. The old ones would fray and, and break, and the new ones were, would get stiff or or, uh, or wouldn't work in in wet conditions. Kernmantle rope basically is the, you you have a, an inner core and an outer sheath, and the inner core is straight strands of of uh, synthetic fiber, and the and then the outer core is woven around it to protect it. And it turns out that that gives the rope really desirable properties that can be tuned to d depending on what you want. And for mountain climbers, you really don't want the rope to break. That's a bad thing. <laughs> but you don't want something that's completely rigid. Because then if you fall and the rope catches you, it's just going to break your neck or break your back from, right. the, from the jolt. So you want to tune something that's very strong but has a little bit of flexibility or a little bit of give. And with current mantle rope, you can, you can do it however you want. You can have a lot of give or not very much give, and, but you can keep it strong. And, and that really changed mountain climbing in a lot of ways. So we had, it was a guy at, in, uh, at the Exploratorium in San Francisco, a guy named Paul Doherty, who, who really advocated for this. Hmm. And, uh, you know, we thought about it, and we, when we mentioned it to other people, they said, yeah, that, you know, that did make a big change, you know, in terms of what people were doing in their leisure time. And so we said, let's put it in there. We're speaking with Popular Mechanics editor Alex Hutchinson about the new book, Big Ideas, 100 Modern Inventions That Have Transformed Our World. Um, Alex, from my money, I think the most curious choice you made in the book was from your leisure section. Your experts picked the polyurethane foam surfboard, and you start off in that section noting that the man who made 90% of them mysteriously destroyed his machinery in 2005. Can you talk about the invention and, and that odd recent development? Yeah, that was a strange one. I mean, so surfing has a long history. I think it goes back to, you know, 1,500 years ago or something in the in the Hawaiian Islands. Um, and initially, you know, you're just standing on a plank and trying to surf. And uh, speaking as a guy who's only tried to surf once and not very successfully, <laughs> I, I can say it's it's hard enough even with good surfboards. <laughs> so there's been this long trend of trying to, uh, you know, improve the the characteristics of surfboards. Um, and they, tr they tried a whole bunch of different materials, but it wasn't until the 50s that they, they finally started to, uh, to, to figure out you could get something that's light and you know, waterproof, so if it cracks, it won't start to, to fill up. 
and uh, it, it turned out that poly, polyurethane foam uh, had exactly the right properties. But uh, um, somehow this guy, um, what's his name, Grubby Gordon Clark, yeah. he ended up totally dominating the market um, for you know four decades. But as, as environmental rules got stricter and stricter, he was having more and more trouble having his factories meet the uh, the, the, the the needs or the, the the limitations. And finally, he just gave up. And he was always a strange guy. <laughs> and so in 2005, he just said, "Forget it. I'm not I'm not producing blanks anymore." And he destroyed his machinery to prevent anyone else from making them. <laughs> so he created a real crisis in the surface surfing industry. Um, but <laughs> but there's no doubt that that anyone who yeah. As bad as I was when I tried surfing, <laughs> I, I would have been a lot worse if I wasn't using one of these nice, light, strong, flexible surfboards. Well, I didn't expect to learn about the crisis in surfing reading your book, but it's just it's full, of, full of nuggets <laughs> like that. Um, your book has numerous instances where an innovation was held back for any number of reasons, and, and the one you know that as a medical doctor sort of smacked me upside the head was to find out that Prozac was actually developed in the 1970s, but you have fixed the date uh, 1987 to it, because the marketing department at Eli Lilly told the developers that psychiatrists were satisfied with tricyclic antidepressants, so it took that decade and a half for this SSRIs to get approved and used. And the, for me, knowing how, how toxic tricyclics were, I was really surprised by that one. Yeah, some of these things, you, you, and this is not the only case where you look back and say, what, what were people thinking? I mean, it's obvious that this is a, a huge leap forward. Why, why didn't we latch onto it first. Now, I, I think to be fair, uh, there was probably also, I think there was a lot of research that needed to be done in terms of uh, safety in humans and, and uh, you know, getting through all the trials and all that. So, so it wasn't like the marketing department held them, held them back for 13 years. Right. But, but, but the marketing par- department held them back and so did, you know, they, they submitted their results to, to Science, which is a very prestigious journal, and Science wasn't interested. They said, this is not a, this is not a big development. And so, wow. it, it, I mean, it's it's sort of like, you know, the, the laser, one of the one of the really most important inventions. Uh, when they first thought of it, they didn't bother patenting it because they couldn't think of any use for it. They they went to a lawyer, and the lawyer said, "Well, why would you patent it if you can't think of anything to do with this thing?" <laughs> you know, looking back, we're like, uh, "Hello." Yeah. You know, but uh, yeah, it, it wasn't it, obvious at the. Yeah, in your laser, you mentioned that one inventor lost out in the patent because he thought he had to build a prototype, which is not necessarily so. Yeah, that that was that was one of the the laser guys. Um, he, that's a, a, a terrible story in some ways. In that he, he so like you said, he thought he had to. He came up with the idea. He thought he had to build a, a, a prototype. So he quit his PhD, went and tried to try and build one. He he interested a company in it, and they got a one million dollar grant from the Department of Defense to try and build a laser. But then they did a background check, and this guy had attended a, a communist study group meeting ten years earlier. So he didn't get security clearance, and he wasn't even allowed to work. After starting this project, they didn't even let him work on it. And so they lost the race to build the first laser. Wow. Well, another big delay you cited in the book, kind of a, an odd one, a lightly adhesive glue. 3M company came up with that in 1968, but nobody could figure out what to do with it. Then somebody else at 3M was, uh, I guess, uh, in, the, in the choir, and his bookmarks kept falling out, and, and he, that gave him an idea. Can you talk about that product? Yeah, I mean, we... We, we can call it lightly adhesive glue now. What, what, probably what they called it then was uh, crappy glue that didn't work. Um, <laughs> you know, it just wasn't all that sticky. It was kind of sticky, but not all that sticky. They didn't know what to do with it. And, and like you said, uh, another guy named Art Fry 
was finally decided, hey, you know, this might keep my bookmarks in place in, in my, my choir, choir book. And he started using it. And then the other people started at, at 3M, thought, hey, this is pretty useful to have these, these what came to be called post-it notes um, to, to sort of write things on, and we can stick them, and then we can move them and put them back on, and they still stick. But they still couldn't, they could, they couldn't sell them. They, no one was interested in them, and they eventually they, they, they took it to four test cities, and the only way they could get people to, to try them was just to give out thousands and thousands and thousands for free. And once people tried them, then they thought, hey, these are actually pretty useful. And, that, and then they had to do that nationwide. To get people to use them, they had to just give them away because no one could conceive of them being useful <laughs> until they tried them. <laughs> well, most inventions that you have in the book uh, are, are something that were kind of, you know, progressing on a wide front. Someone makes a breakthrough here or there, but... Uh, I think everyone likes the story of the guy that comes up with something completely out of left field, and that certainly was the case of Chester Carlson and the case of the photocopier. Yeah, that's a fantastic story because, like you said, we 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 all do like the, the the image of the lone inventor who comes up with this brainwave, and that that really is pretty rare. And and for the most part, most of these inventions, you could say, all right, this guy who came up with it, he's he's a smart guy, but if if he hadn't done it, someone else on the other side of the world would have done it a year later or something. With the photocopier, it's not clear that anyone would have invented this process at all, uh, it, you know, if it hadn't been for Chester Carlson. And he had to do a bunch of different things to figure out how to, you know, transfer a pattern from a piece of paper to an uh, electro electrostatic charge and then make the toner sort of assemble in that pattern and then heat the toner to make it stick to the paper. This was, this was just all sorts of different things that no one else was working on in the world. And he, he had to do it all. And he, he succeeded in making a test photocopy in 1938 but then it took another 22 years before, you know he tried to do it on his own and he tried to interest companies in it and he finally got a company called Haloid to to try and develop it and then they had to spend a whole bunch of time and money trying to make it into a product that could actually be sold and that was 1960 they they, they sold their first photocopiers but it, that was 22 years after the the demo and it was it was really probably the most stark case of a of one guy coming up with an idea and, and taking that, that idea from from the drawing board to a, to a practical device. Well, I have one final uh, particular choice you came out of the book uh, that I think we maybe ought to talk about because it's one of the, again, one of the more surprising ones, uh, container shipping. I thought that was really strange at first, but I read your explanation, and it really is clear why your experts were, were so impressed by you know how revolutionary that was. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it, you can define inventions in different ways, and it's sort of like, well, what did he invent? He didn't invent the box. I mean, we've had the box for a while. But in the olden days, if you bought something from far away, you know, an imported good, probably, by some estimates, about 50% of the, of the price you paid would have gone to transportation costs. And part of that was because it just took so darn long to load and unload. You know, if you brought a truckload of something... Then you had to take everything out of the truck, put it on the ship. Then the ship went across the ocean. You took everything out of the ship, and you had to put it in the, in the on the train or whatever. So the idea that we should we could we could have uniform containers that, you know, you could, you could fit it on the back of a truck. You could stack them up in a ship. You can put them on a on a train. That that totally changed both the timing and the price of imported goods. And you know we can certainly. Uh, debate whether this has been a, a good or a bad thing, but you couldn't have this, a global economy in the same way that we do today right. without container shipping. And it was one guy who pushed for it. It wasn't this sort of thing that um, where everyone was moving in the same direction. P 
people thought this guy was crazy, and he, he leveraged himself to the hilt, you know, with huge bank loans to, because he was a trucker who then had to buy a shipping company to make this work. Right. And, and, uh, and he did. Well, um, if the list was, say, 101 or 102 long, what, what, what items do you reckon that you would have added that just kind of maybe, maybe failed to make the cut and you were sorry to not include? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. I, the, 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 really, the most rigorous competition came in the computer section because yeah. there are so many computer inventions that, that, that were worthy. And the, the one that I kind of like is the, the Altair 8800 uh, home computer kit, which came out in 1975. And that, was, that, that really created a hobbyist craze. And it, was, it came just before the first personal computers, the, 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 the Apple II and things like that. It, it was allowing people at home to, to play with a computer. And I, I think that's pretty transformative. It, to me, that's number 101. Okay, it does get mentioned in the Apple II section, so it did make the book, but just didn't get it. I squeezed it in, okay. but, it, but it didn't get an entry on its own. All right, very good. Well, uh, Alex, final question. If you're going to bet on, oh, and this is a tough one, if you're going to bet in the next invention that might be transformative, uh, where, where would you put your money? Well, it seems to me that the, the, uh, the action these days is in energy. Uh, I think that there's a good probability that if we're, if we're looking at this question again in 20 years, or, I mean, I hope that if we look at this question again in 20 years, we're going to say, boy, in the last 10 years, this new way or, or this better way of, of, of producing or using energy has, has really been the, the dominant thing. Um, my suspicion is that it's going to be something that's an incremental or, or we finally figured out how to do something better, but the idea is already out there rather than someone coming up with a totally out-of-left-field idea saying that, oh, you know, we, we, you know, we didn't realize that uh, you know, we can run our cars on apples or something <laughs> like that. It's, it's going to be something we know about, but someone will finally make it work. The book is Popular Mechanics, Big Ideas, 100 Modern Inventions That Have Transformed Our World. We've been speaking with author and contributing editor at Popular Mechanics, Alex Hutchinson, who's won awards for the magazine series Know Your Footprint, energy, water, and waste. Uh, Alex, I enjoyed this book very much, and we didn't even touch a lot of the choices, so I think Alyssa's going to have to get a copy if they want to learn more. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks for speaking with us, and keep up the good work over at Popular Mechanics. It's usually a very entertaining read.